Our scripture today is from the book of Mark, chapter 14, verses 26 to 42. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to the disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed, If it were possible, the hour might pass for him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter Simon, Are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See my betrayer at hand. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Uh, once again, I'm John Kraft. I'm the uh, campus minister, the RF campus minister at Rhodes College. I, it's a great privilege for me to be here with you all this morning. I was really excited when Les uh, invited me to come. Uh, so I'm, I've, you know, this is the first, honestly, since at least, especially preaching on Sunday morning, the first I've done in, in almost a year. And so I'm very excited to actually see faces and not just be preaching to a computer or to a uh, camera. So I'm really uh, glad to be here with you all this morning. Also, uh, we're going to read a little bit past uh, the passage that was read. Uh, was for length, we, we cut it off. Um, and we'll read a little bit more later on. And so if you still, if you have your phones or your, your Bibles to Mark 14, go ahead and keep that open. Uh, we'll be diving back in in a second. But um, before we keep going, let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, your word and, and for being able to come and worship you, Lord. And I just pray that, uh, that your Holy Spirit would speak to us and speak to our hearts through your word this morning. I pray this in your name. Amen. So, uh, one of uh, the movies I've grown to love uh, over the years is a Lego movie. Uh, I've, I've probably only seen it, actually seen it two, maybe three times. Uh, but but dr being the driver of a minivan uh, where kids are in the back watching it uh, on the screen, I think I've heard it about 85 times. And, and so I'm very, uh, very tuned in to the Lego movie. And one of the reasons I like it so much, uh, just, it's fun and well-made, is also that, you know, the theme of, you know, this this sort of uh, this main character named Emmett, who's sort of kind of an everyman. And, and one of the things that he wants is to sort of stand out, to be special. He sort of wants to be a hero. And part of the plot is that uh, sort of mistakenly, or, or maybe not, I guess, don't want to spoil anything, but he, he gets deci it, people decide that he is the special, that he is the hero that has been promised that, that will come and bring change, that will make things great. They're, they're what 
you know, so many characters have been looking for. And, and the whole movie is about him, you know, coming to grips and trying to figure out, am I this hero? A am, I, am I good enough? Am I heroic enough? And, and I identify with that. Uh, I really do. I've, I was thinking about that. It's a Wonderful Life gets played a bunch over the holidays, and it's a movie I always find myself watching. You know, but, but at the, those bad times in my life, those times, you know, especially as I get older and I, I'm reflecting and I'm thinking about what's going on in my life, and, and, and I see that, you know, like this, this whole George Bailey, you know, sees all the great things that have, that have happened because of his life, and he's celebrated there at the end of the movie. You know, it's a wonderful life. And just thinking, like, I don't know if that would be true. You know, I, I'm, I feel that, that sort of sense of insecurity of, like, if I didn't exist, would the world be better? Would, would things matter? You know, do I matter? And, and I want to be a hero. And it's even shown in little ways. Uh, one of the things uh, my wife, Lee, sometimes likes to do, or used to do, actually, uh, would be like to take, you know, these like BuzzFeed quizzes or Facebook quizzes on, you know, what, you know, what Disney character are you, you know, what, uh, what Harry Potter character are you, sort of thing like that. And I remember... Um, and she was, watch, she was asking me, you know, doing the kind of what Harry Potter character you uh, poll for me. And she was asking me questions, but I think it was like the fourth quarter of a Grizzlies game or a college football game. So I was a little distracted and I was kind of just answering. And, and we got to the end and I just heard her start to kind of snicker a little bit and laugh. And I looked around like, what is it? And she was like, well, you got Draco Malfoy. That's what Harry Potter character you are. And that's like the villain of Harry Potter or one of the villainous characters of Harry Potter. And so, of course, what did I do? I paused the game and I'm like, let's take this quiz again. And this is going to get serious. And, and I'll have you know, I got Harry Potter. It only took me about six times to take the quiz, but I got him. And, and Peter is the same in this passage. And, and we have sort of, you know, widespread evidence in the early church is that Peter is one of the main sources of Mark's gospel. He's one of the, the main eyewitnesses that Mark uses as he was composing the gospel. And, and, and Peter is who I want to look at in this passage uh, that, that takes place the night before Jesus' crucifixion, especially as Mark contrasts Peter with Jesus. And so first, that first little portion, Mark 14, 26 through 31, we see in verse 27, Jesus quotes uh, Zechariah 13, 7 about, about him being a shepherd about to be stricken. And that when that happens, all the disciples will flee and leave him like sheep being scattered. And Peter will not hear of it. Peter hears Jesus and replies, even though all will fall away, I will not. That's quite the bold statement, especially said in front of all the other people, all the other disciples. You know, even though they may fall away, I will not. You know, in a sense, Peter wanted to show his loyalty. He was probably so frustrated because a couple chapters earlier, James and John had kind of gone behind his and other disciples' back to ask Jesus if they could be kind of the second and third in command. Uh, they had just heard a prediction by Jesus that one of them would betray him. And he sees this as a, very, as a great moment to prove to Jesus just how loyal he is, how heroic he is. He is, especially compared to the other disciples. I will be your hero, Jesus. I will stay true no matter what. And Jesus, not out of anger, but sort of matter-of-factly, states just how heroic Peter is going to be. Before morning, you will betray me. You will deny me three times. And you think with all this prophecy of failure that Jesus would be angry but no, but Jesus actually promises in verse 28 reunion and reconciliation. Jesus showing who he is, that he gives hope 
even when there's a negative prophecy about you, that they will meet again, Jesus assures Peter and the disciples. So moving on to Mark 14, uh, that next passage, verse 32 through 42. Jesus is beginning to feel the immediacy of what is coming, and it shows that Jesus is human. He's not some robot, that, that Jesus has emotions. Verse 33 shows that Jesus is distressed and troubled. He's, bought, he's brought the disciples he's closest to, his friends Peter, James, and John, to share with them his distress and his trouble. In verse 34, Jesus tells his friends just how upset he is, that he's sorrowful even to death, that it's a great sadness. You know, and often this is my description, uh, you know, when, when people ask me what, you know, my Rhodes students who I have not seen since last March, late February, you know, what they've been going through with this pandemic and what many of you have been and, and often what I have felt, which is sadness, which is loneliness, which is a sense of kind of worthlessness at times. Notice here that Jesus has two actions when he has profound sadness, prayer and friends. When he experiences sadness in the most troubling time of his life, he thinks relationally. I need to go to God. I need to have fellowship with others. Jesus doesn't just go alone in the woods by himself. He doesn't close the door to his room. He doesn't like sort of try to alienate himself from others or disappear. You know, he doesn't do the like, you know, uh, the rom-com, I just got broken up with thing, like not showering and eating whipped cream out of the can and just having piles and piles of Haagen-Dazs just collecting around you. You know, no, he takes his friends with him. He seeks out people to care for him. You know, I don't know where it got started that it was somehow more holy to always, like, do piety by yourself or that it was more mature to sort of hold all your emotions in, to say everything is fine all the time, to not let other people into the things that are hard or, or trouble you. I don't know where that became, you know, sort of our mindset. And that's saying that there's not a time to be by yourself and, and pray. Just saying that that's not the only thing Jesus does in a crisis. He prays and he gets with his people. So if the only perfect human who happens to be God needs to be vulnerable and open up to people, I think we might need that as well. Notice for Jesus, showing weakness is not shameful, but reality in this broken world. Maturity is showing weakness and admitting that you need others. In fact, Jesus' main critique of the Pharisees throughout the gospel is that they act like they have it all together and don't need anybody else. You know, the, the, the Oscars are coming up soon a little bit. They've been delayed a little bit, but they're coming up. And, and, uh, and you can already tell I'm, I'm sort of a movie person. And, you know, but sometimes I always laugh and think about my, my own life and my life with, with other Christians that we should all get Oscars for what great actors we are, especially like on Sunday mornings. You know, we put on the nice clothes and we, we are out in the lobbies talking and everything's fine and, and we're telling jokes you know, and, and that's great. And, and, you know, we're putting on social media all the time how great our lives are, how everything's great, our, our family's great, our lives are great, look all the exciting things we're doing. You know, when in reality, many of us at times are scared. We're, we're insecure. We feel alone. You know, that we're stressed about our jobs and our school and our future and our families and our roommates. You know, that life is actually anything but fine often. And, and if this is the church, and if you can't be real here, where can we be real? 
And quickly, let's go back to the prayer. Because Jesus prays to God here, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Well, what's going on here? You know, first we see the intimacy God the Son has with God the Father. And then a lot of people trying to figure out what kind of the Abba Father would, you know, what it's kind of best communicated as. And, and most people come up with sort of like a, an intimate name, like, like calling uh, somebody Daddy. You know, and the Trinity is a hard concept for us. One God, three persons. But it shows ultimately that God at his core is relational, an eternal relational being. And in and, and thinking about Daddy, I think about my daughter Lizzie. Um, and, and at some points, you know, when she, she was younger, uh, she began to start calling me John all the time. I think she saw that, you know, other adults and especially the college students that were always around were calling me John. And, you know, she wanted to be cool and fun and, and call, call me John too. And, and she especially, you know, probably noticed that like her grandparents, my parents and, and her mom, uh, you know, when they were like frustrated with me, w- would say like John Craft. And, and something like that. And so what began to happen is it would be like, you know, uh, time to go to bed. But, you know, John Craft, I'm not going to bed. John Craft, I am going to have dessert, sort of thing. And, and, and this was upsetting me, even her just, you know, calling John. She also loved to call me John in front of college students because they always thought it was really funny. And, and I remember one day, you know, going up to her room and, and talking to her about it and saying, you know, Lizzie, you know, I, I know that you like calling me John, but, you know, I'd really like to, you to call me Daddy. And she was, you know, kind of laughing about it. But she was like, yeah, you know, but, you know, like, but all the, you know, college students, everybody else, mom gets to call you John, you know. And, and I was like, yeah, but, but Lizzie, everybody gets to call me John. Only you and your brother William get to say daddy. And I remember looking at me saying, so you're saying that our relationship and that name is special. And yes, it is. Yes, it is, Lizzie. And that's what's going on here in this passage. That, that it means that Jesus, that God the Son and God the Father have a special relationship. And it shows that it's more intimate than any relationship that we've ever known. And this is kind of one of the more personal views we get of it in Scripture. It's the perfect relationship, and yet Jesus understands that his mission is to lose that perfect relationship, to be forsaken and abandoned by God the Father when he goes to the cross. Jesus shows he's truly human. He asks God to find another way. You know, Jesus is not some masochist. He hates pain and death, and he wishes there were some other way. Yet Jesus shows his obedience by submitting to God the Father's will. Unlike Adam and Eve, Jesus faces temptation in the garden and yet submits to God. And to try to get you to understand this about what Jesus is going through, think about the time that you've been abandoned in your life whether it be by a parent, whether somebody breaking up with you, whether a close friend hurting or betraying you or a partner where you work. You know, that is a deep, deep pain. When you have intimacy with someone and that is ripped away, it feels like death. You know, some of you experience this with divorce. And that's why divorce is so hard and so traumatizing. It's because it's intimacy. It's been ripped away. Jesus had the most perfect intimate relationship of the the universe, and he will lose that, be forsaken by God the Father for us, because he loves us. Because Jesus submits the will of the Father, you know, it has a whole new meaning. Because it's not just unbelievable obedience, 
but it also shows his unbelievable love for us. Because Jesus did not want to just be the only person who's able to say daddy to God the Father. He wanted us to be able to too. So that we can come to a church service and and pray our Father like it's no big deal. That the God of the universe is our Father now. Jesus wanted that for us. He wanted to share that relationship with us because he loves us. And it takes on a whole new meaning, especially when we know how we treat God. How we reject God daily. How every week we're going to have to come and confess sin. You know, look at how Jesus deals with the disciples here. After praying, Jesus goes to be with his friends who have fallen asleep in the hour of his greatest need. And they fail him three times they can't stay awake. Peter hasn't denied Jesus yet three times, but he's already hurt Jesus three times. He's already failed him in a different way. So much for being a hero. And Jesus could have been upset and could have you know, decided, you're no longer my friends, you're no longer my disciples. But Jesus doesn't do that. In fact, the cross shows that he loves those men who failed him at his time of need. And if Jesus' love could endure the cross, how could we ever believe that we can do something to destroy his love for us? All the sins that we've committed and will commit against him have already been paid for on the cross. And Hebrews 13.5 promises us that Jesus will never forsake us or abandon us. And so we do not have a distant God. He became human. Have you ever felt betrayed? Have you ever had people fail you at your greatest time of need? Have you ever been unbelievably vulnerable with someone about your feelings or about how depressed you are, about how hurt you are, only to have them lack compassion or to get distracted or maybe even reject you? Well, so did Jesus. And that's why I always think about Hebrews 4.15, that we have a great high priest who's able to sympathize with us in our weakness because he experienced it as well. If you are lonely, pray to a God who has experienced ultimate loneliness. You know, where else but Christianity, but the Christian story, can we find someone like this, a God like this, a hero like this? One further point is that we aren't to be alone, that we were created for relationships. And often my my students, when I tell them this, will say, yes, but people fail me. People hurt me. But we see that Jesus, the God of the universe, needed people. And he knew that they would hurt him and betray him. So just because people's sin will hurt you does not mean you can reject intimate relationships with all other people. And the gospel, the certain intimacy and union you now have with Jesus, actually frees you up to love people, even though they won't live up possibly to that love. The gospel empowers us to live a lifestyle of repentance and forgiveness with people who really know you and love you. Not just a lifestyle of moving from one relationship to the next or just having merely superficial relationships in your life. No, the church is actually where you can form real relationships where people can be with you in good times and in bad. And so quickly, If you'll read with me, uh, Mark 14, 43 through 52. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. 
And when he came, he went up to him and at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. One of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as, a, as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple's teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And the young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. So quickly, just Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss. And as an army approaches, someone cuts off not one of the soldier's ears, but the weakest one probably there, the servant of the high priest, you know, the, the least threatening. And of course, we find out in John's gospel that it was Peter, that he was ready to do battle, um, probably trying to make up the fact that he fell asleep just, just a few minutes ago while Jesus was, was wanting him and needing him. He wants to show how loyal he is and make it up to Jesus. You know, and it's funny, and kind of reflecting on my life, when I try to earn God's love, uh, when I try to mask my weaknesses and flaws, when, when I try to be the hero, is often when I end up hurting other people, just like Peter. You know, because Jesus is not looking for military heroism or success. And by the way, he's not looking for the perfect family or the perfect body or a 4.0 or being well-known and well-liked, or, or, or having the perfect yard, or the perfect home, or the perfect theology, or, or any other way sort of our own personal hero scenarios play out in our heads. Jesus doesn't ask us to be heroes. And again, the irony of them coming with an army when Jesus continually has shown that is not the kind of king or Messiah he is. The only violence that will happen is going to happen to him and to his followers. We also have here a short passage of a young man following Jesus. Um, the early church sometimes says this is a young Mark, putting himself in the story here, um, you know, who is, wants to get, get away so fast that even though his clothes are grabbed, he keeps running. And, but the main thing it's supposed to show us is that everyone is leaving Jesus as quickly as possible, even if it means running through the streets naked. Like Jesus said, and like he prophesied, the sheep are scattering. The sheep are scattering. And then let me end by finishing up Mark 14 here. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and elders and the scribes came together, and Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. Some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimonies did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But Peter denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out to the gateway, and, and the rooster crowed. 
And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And Peter broke down and wept. And this last little passage here is what like, you know, like an English professor would say would be a narrative sandwich with a little bit about Peter at the beginning and end, um, but then the trial of Jesus in the middle, showing us the contrast here. And first, let's look at just this trial and how unjust it is. The Sanhedrin was supposed to practice innocent until proven guilty. Uh, they were supposed to give Jesus defense, and they did not. They brought out false witnesses who contradicted themselves. They were supposed to take two days for a capital punishment case, but did this quickly. Then they allowed people to mock, spit, and beat him instead of protect him. And most importantly of all, Jesus was innocent of the accusations. Jesus, uh, this passage is showing us that Jesus understands injustice. That Jesus understands oppression. That he experienced it firsthand. And all of you have experienced in some ways injustice and oppression, and oppression, and some of you way more than other people have experienced it. And Jesus knows and understands because he also suffered the greatest injustice. In fact, though he is the one being judged, ultimately he is the judge. He is the just one. And this is what he's saying in that, quote, blasphemous reply about being at the right hand of power. Jesus is the ultimate judge, and the Sanhedrin is actually the one committing blasphemy. They accused him of being a false prophet, while his prophecy about Peter and his death were coming true. At that very moment, they accused him of being a false prophet. Yet here's a foreshadowing of the cross. The judge takes upon himself the role of the guilty, and the guilty take upon themselves the role of judge. Or as the theologian John Stott put it, the essence of sin is us substituting ourselves for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. We assert ourselves against God and put ourselves where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for us and puts himself where only we deserve to be. We claim prerogatives which belong to God alone. God accepts penalties which belong to us alone. And now let's look at Peter and how he contrasts with Jesus here. Jesus is questioned by the Sanhedrin, you know, the most powerful men to a Jewish person. Peter is questioned, accused by a servant woman with no power in a patriarchal society. Both are charged with something that will bring great trouble upon them. But while they are false with Jesus, they're actually true with Peter. Jesus declares the truth. Peter denies the truth. Jesus is beaten by guards. Peter warms himself by the fire with those very same guards. Jesus tells truth despite consequences. Peter avoids the consequences of truth. Jesus is cursed by the Sanhedrin. Peter brings curse upon himself. Peter is demonstrating that he is not a hero. He actually only wanted the things heroes get. He so quickly denied knowing Jesus when it meant any danger or harm to him. Like Peter, we say we want to be heroes. However, at least I'll admit myself, 
What we really want and what we really fantasize about are the results of heroism, receiving approval from others, gaining comfort, gaining fame, you know, actually earning love from other people and knowing we deserve it, having a great name. You know, I believe Peter wanted to be the hero. He wanted to be the good guy in the story, or at least maybe the second place good guy or the loyal sidekick to Jesus. You know, he declared that he would follow Jesus always. And yet, in less than like 12 hours, he fails and fails spectacularly. He falls asleep three times when needed. He spontaneously cuts off someone's ear, possibly inciting great violence and chaos. And he denies even knowing Jesus three times. The rooster crows, Peter realizes who he really is, and he weeps. Have you ever had that moment? Have you ever had this moment? You thought you were good, and then you realized you were not? For me, this happens all the time. You know, I was a pretty good roommate, and a pretty good friend, and a pretty good boyfriend, and a pretty good husband, and a pretty good father, and a pretty good pastor, until often I'm confronted with my selfishness, with my limits, with my flaws, and most of all, my sin. And how much I can hurt other people, even people I care about and love. What do we do with all this failure? You know, because when I look at my life, I realize that not only do I fail to be a hero of the story, I often am the villain of the story. And that realization can be crushing. And so what do I do? Well, the answer to this is the gospel. Because we're not asked to be the hero of our own story. Jesus is the hero of our story. And when he becomes the hero of our story and we recognize it, everything changes. Because Jesus is the one who goes to the cross heroically, saving my life, though I fail him all the time. Though I sin against God daily, Jesus submitted to God's will for me. We leave this passage with Peter weeping, but he did not weep long. Instead, he found great joy as Jesus rose again and came to Peter. And John records Peter seeing the risen Jesus and not even waiting till the boat docks to jump into the water to run to Jesus. You see, because Peter realized Jesus was his hero. Jesus was the hero of the story. It was no longer about being the hero but that now Peter had a hero in Jesus, a hero who loved him no matter what. And it would lead Peter to write these words in 1 Peter 2, 23-25. Peter writes this about Jesus. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who just, judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we may die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And get this in verse 25. For you and I were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Peter, in his letter to the church, 
in verse 25, recounts Jesus' prophecy of Peter's biggest recorded prayer, and biggest reported failure, of Peter scattering like sheep at Jesus' time of need. Why can he do that? Because Peter loved Jesus because he realized how much Jesus loved him. He understood that while he was more sinful than he even realized, Jesus loved him more than he could ever hope. Only when we live in this truth will we begin to find security in the cross and not in our present circumstances. Only then will we enter into a relationship secure in Christ so that we can actually love even those who fail us. Only then, when Jesus is our hero, will we begin to develop fruit that Jesus calls heroic, like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Peter ended up dying for the name of Jesus. But he could do this only because he knew, even when he was the villain of his story, he had a hero in Jesus. When we feel like Peter did over and over again and are exposed, know that we have a true hero, a Savior who does not bring shame, does not tell us to do better or else. But we have a hero who brings forgiveness and love and gifts and blessing and showers us with those things and with grace for eternity. If you feel shame and regret about your sins this morning or about your shortcomings or about your flaws or about your weaknesses, know that Jesus is the one who says, come to me, you who are weary, who are heavy burdened, trying to be a hero, and I will give you rest. I am your hero. Let me save you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you for the gospel. Jesus, I thank you for being our hero. I pray that as we go into the world, Lord, that we will remember that you don't ask us to be heroes and that, and that you are our hero. I pray this in your name. Amen.